Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a recently published book by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and shops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an associate professor of management information systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Richard Beaver, the Chief Information Security Officer of Duke University. Richard is also the Director of Identity Management there. Uh, he joined Duke in February 2011 after previously holding positions with the Georgia Institute of Technology's Office of Information Technology and with Hewlett Packard. Richard is a very experienced security professional. He holds several certifications. He also holds a bachelor's, a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Georgia and a master's degree in international relations from Georgia State University. Delighted to have Richard in today's discussion. The theme is titled Empowering the Chief Information Security Officer Role and Function. To set the context for our discussion this morning, there is growing recognition that the CISO, Chief Information Security Officer, is much more than a risk or technology officer. They are business enablers and must be involved in strategic and value creation activities. Whether it is the development and implementation of an AI-enabled application or leveraging the cloud platform, deploying IoT devices, establishing a highly mobile environment. CISOs are involved in a lot of initiatives and they must be empowered to facilitate innovation, actively engage in strategic initiatives and be treated as a peer at the C-level. The overall goal is to remove any kind of hindrance to the performance of their activities. With that said, Richard, I'd like to bring you into the discussion, and maybe we could start with the question, what does it take to be an effective CISO? Hi, Dave, and uh, thank you very much for having me on the on the podcast. And, and yeah, I mean, I think this is a very timely topic. Uh, to your point, there's, there's um, it, we're seeing the CISO role being more engaged and more uh, at the table, so to speak, with regards to how businesses are running themselves. Unfortunately, uh, 2021 has provided a number of examples of, of why having a strategically uh, or strategic security program and one that can um, one that can look ahead at, at both current and potential future threats is a benefit, not a uh, not a detriment to companies. So when I look back over uh, my career and thinking a little bit about what does it take to be an effective uh, CISO, 
I, I think one of the biggest things, and you kind of touched on this as far as being a business enabler, but uh, it, it's really around being that partner in the organization. Um, I know from my perspective, when I got started, I was very focused on coming in and listening and and seeing how Duke University um, was run, what the major missions were, what the major pain points were, and how could we help address those. Uh, sometimes security is looked at as, as a, a um, a stumbling block or or is a barrier, but in this particular case, uh, we we found numerous opportunities to say how can we help our research colleagues, how can we help our our administrative groups such as finance or HR to ensure that the data that they're working with, the services that they're working with, are um, are dealt with in an appropriate manner, and they can feel confident in those those particular services. Um, so I really think finding that balance of how security can be an enabler and how the, it can be a good partner within the organization um, was a, a key area for how we've been able to be so effective. Okay, great. Good to hear. Uh, I'd like you to dwell on, you know, you mentioned about being a good listener. So in the context of your institution, when you're trying to learn about the various activities of the stakeholders and how best to secure them and their data. What mechanisms do you have in place to be an effective listener? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think for us, it was about going out and creating relationships. Um, so from a CISO perspective, we are responsible um, you know, for the security of the organization and security in that, from that standpoint, it could be what protections do you have in place? It could be how do we identify uh, uh, risk in the environment? It could be how we, uh, we detect or identify attacks. And then when they do happen, how do they react? So, you know, keeping that in mind, we're, we're not only looking at this strategically and keeping the board informed and leadership informed, but we also have to, you know, going back to my original point, we, we've got to find a way to, to balance with what is happening with our faculty, staff, and students. So, you know, I, I think from a listening perspective, especially early on, we heard what the concerns of leadership and the board were. We heard what the assumptions were from leadership about things like what kind of sensitive data does the, the university have. And then uh, I, I made it a point to go out and really develop relationships with key personnel, not just IT personnel, but the business and academic personnel in the different schools and departments so that we could get a feel for what was happening there, where we could identify with them what their concerns were and, and really going in without any assumptions. Um, simply sitting down and talking to them, asking them questions, listening to what they told us, um, and then taking that information back uh, to, to see what we could do to help them out. Okay. So, um, you know, while your unit, your function should be good listeners, I believe the expectation is that the recipients, the stakeholders, should also be good followers or good listeners when your unit 
is providing instructions. And that leads to how do you communicate effectively the do's and don'ts? And I'll be curious to know how, how you approach your cybersecurity communications at your institution. Right. So I, I think a lot of it is about telling a story. And, and I think cybersecurity has come a long way in that regard. You, you know, originally um, there, there was a little bit of this, uh, you know, kind of ivory tower approach where somebody would say, we're going to institute this, this uh, requirement. Um, and they would get asked why, and they would say, well, because it's to secure the, the system or the service or the data or whatever, but that doesn't really provide a tangible reason as to why it's, it's very much, it's very opaque. And in some cases, even if you say, well, we're doing this because we heard about these attacks or these issues elsewhere, uh, or because of particular compliance requirement, you know, then it's still abstract. So one of the things that we were successful in doing um, is taking initiatives, uh, I'll use multi-factor as an example, and really explaining how it was, how the lack of multi-factor in our case was impacting Duke as a whole, and then faculty, staff, and students on a, on a personal level. And uh, so when you go back and you look at in the higher ed space and, and also outside the higher ed space, about five, six years ago, there was a, um, a series of attacks against organizations where they would try to change direct deposit information. And these were um, usually done via phishing messages, et cetera. And so looking at it, and being able to tell that story to our stakeholders, to our customers, so to speak, about this is what is happening. And by the way, if we had this thing over here called multi-factor authentication, then it further protects your accounts. You don't lose paychecks. You don't you know, have an impact to your, your financial situation. Um, that allowed us to tell the, the story and explain the reasoning in a rational way as, as to why this particular change was needed. The other thing that we, we really focus on is not just, hey, this is how you're protecting Duke or protecting your professional career at Duke. We also try very hard to take initiatives and show how you can do this in your personal life. We're, we're in an industry where the lines are often blurred between, you know, what is happening at Duke from an academic or research perspective and what is happening at home from a personal perspective. And so by encouraging these behaviors and by showing people how they can take action to protect themselves and how it's going to benefit them, um, then it becomes a little bit I wouldn't say easier, but it becomes that there is a rationale behind it and they understand why they are being asked to do this or make a change. Fabulous. I love the blurring of the lines between the personal and the professional. I think it's super important that people recognize that they need to have the same kind of a security mindset when it comes to managing their own information as would be expected of them when it comes to managing their professional data. So uh, taking that approach, I think is terrific. But I guess, um, Richard, given the number of people in the institution, over and above faculty members and staff, you've got 
hundreds of thousands of students, right? Thousands of students. How do you reach out to these folks? You know, you know, how do you try to customize the communication? What kind of a mechanism do you have in place to do that? Yeah, that's I, and that's a, that's going to be tough for many organizations because it, when you start looking at it, when you start looking at how to communicate and how to communicate effectively, um, you can oftentimes run into the the problem of over communicating, right? When you you look at how many administrative messages are sent to folks, and um, it, 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 on a daily basis or weekly basis, then it's very it's not hard to imagine that people will um, either start ignoring messaging or they will uh, overlook it because there's just so much of it. So we do, we are careful. We, we have thought a little bit about over the years, you know, different types of communication channels. Um, and so we have everything from, we have a website, you know, that that people can visit, that, that can look at information that we post to regularly. We do provide information on, I would say, a monthly basis about different types of attacks that may be impacting people. But I think uh, one of the most important things that we've done is really to focus on targeted communications. So, for example. If uh, we have individuals that that need to take an extra step to address, say, a, a vulnerability on a system or an application, our monitoring is such that we can send a very targeted message to them saying, hey, we, we need your help in, in addressing this thing. Likewise, one of the things that we've done from an awareness perspective, just like many organizations, is uh, looking at how we do fish testing. And as we do fish testing, then there is an opportunity for what I would call a just-in-time training, if, if needed, to help explain why a particular email or, or attack was um, judged to be such. So... I, Looking at it across the board, I don't think that we've solved this by any stretch of the imagination. But what I would, what I think I would say here is, we recognize the importance of having different communication channels, trying things differently, reaching out to folks across different the different channels, whether it's social media, email, texting, um, or our our collaboration tools, and make sure that we're pushing information that is actionable and useful to the individuals to help them. Okay. So you're aware of the surge in ransomware attacks um, and there is history of ransomware attacks happening at academic institutions. Uh, by way of safeguards and defense mechanisms, obviously you all do a lot by way of uh, being proactive and diligent. Are there any additional steps or measures that you all are taking or you recommend your peers and other institutions take to reduce the risk associated with? with uh... you, you know, I think ransomware attacks are a it, it really is a case study in um, where we are as a security organ or a security industry today. Um, the, the first thing I would say about ransomware, just like any other attack, and you can go back and look, you know, back into the 80s and, and 90s and early 2000s about different inflection points where there were major security attacks 
um, that were leveraged against either individuals or systems connected to the internet. And each time this happened, right, when we go back and we do this now, hindsight obviously being 2020, we can go back and look and say, well, gee, if, if systems had been patched, um, you know, I still recall the, the early 2000s with the worm attacks from things like Code Red and Nimda that took out large numbers of, of systems and networks. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the disaster recovery um, or, or incident response tactics was to disconnect from the network, much like we do today with, with ransomware. And when you go back and look at it, you see the changes that happened as a result, right? Microsoft introduced Patch Tuesday, Adobe does it. Um, Apple, while they don't do a Patch Tuesday, they do something uh, on a you know close to monthly cadence. And I, I think some of those lessons from the early 2000s still hold true today, right? When we look at this, ransomware is not something that just came out of the blue. It's something that's been developing for a period of time. It started off as, as send an email or convince an individual to open up an attachment and their computer would get infected. They'd be asked to pay, you know, 40, 50 bucks or whatever. And then the computer would get unlocked. And really where it exploded was after um, the Eternal Blue and, and uh, the, the subsequent WannaCry attacks. Um, and that's really where, you know, kind of this idea of weaponizing and then automating the ransomware attacks came about. So when we go and we look at it now, what are the things that we recommend? Um, the basics still work. Patching is a good thing to do, should be patched. What systems do you have directly connected to the internet and should they be directly connected to the internet? Um, you know, a good example of that, when you look at some of the, the malware attacks that are out there today, they still heavily leverage a lot of the, uh, the, the Windows, and in some cases, Linux, either remote access or file sharing uh, protocols. And so you have to ask yourself, should these things be directly accessible? Uh, passwords and multi-factor obviously are, are uh, a key part of this. Um, and what I would say is in the last few years, the, the other two things that really have become important as far as ransomware goes, um, this concept of EDR, endpoint detection response, which is think of it as kind of uh, going a step beyond traditional antivirus. Um, EDR has been very effective in, in many cases with ransomware type attacks. Uh, again, we have to be very careful to, to put all our eggs in one basket and say, yes, this is the silver bullet that will solve all your problems because it's not. Uh, but it has been effective in detecting and identifying uh, particular issues. The second thing I think um, is, is really this idea of detection on the network. And the reason why I say that is we have to, as security professionals, operate from the standpoint that we're going to be attacked. We are going to have an incident. It could be a breach. It could just be um, taking over a system or whatever. And we know that in many cases that that attack will not be a single point, but it will attempt to spread out across the environment. So how good a job are we doing from a network detection perspective to kind of catch that second stage? And 
the good news is, you know, when, when we go back and we look at the the uh, evolution of cybersecurity, is that many groups are thinking about this. Um, one that comes to mind right off the back is MITRE, uh, M-I-T-R-E.org. And a few years back, they, they introduced this idea of the attack framework, um, which is a way for organizations to go out and look and evaluate their infrastructure um, to put the triggers in place and be prepared for detecting particular attacks uh, against their environment. And so I, I do think while attackers will continue to evolve and change and um, and and uh, attempt to find that one weak link into organizations, they're never going to go away. I do think it is incumbent upon organizations to keep an eye on what's happening, to constantly reevaluate their program and to focus on tactical changes that will improve their ability to detect uh, attacks against their environment. Great. In fact, I think you touched upon several elements of what I think are, are very important elements of a proactive cybersecurity culture. Uh, talking about culture and the role of humans in creating and sustaining a high-performance security culture, um, what are some things that CISOs of academic and other institutions should be thinking about or should be trying to implement? So this will sound a little corny, but but security is everybody's responsibility. And, and that's I think that is a culture that uh, is really important to bring into an organization. Um, I, I look at this as kind of at three layers. I, I look at it as first, what does the security team look like? Second, what do your partnerships with other IT groups look like? And the third is what do your partnerships with um, kind of your, your uh, customer base, so to speak, or, or the folks that are in the enterprise, in our case, the faculty, staff, and students, you know, how are they looking at this? And so if I start with the team, um, I think the biggest thing that, that we have is this idea of creating a sense of agency within the team. And by that, I mean, when we create, we, we update our, our security plan or our security objectives on an annual basis, some of which will extend into multiple years, um, because when you're dealing with enterprise projects, uh, those can have kind of a long tail at the end of them. But the, the biggest thing that we do with the team is they, they are involved in the creation of the plan. They have areas of responsibility. There's crossover uh, within the team. And I, as I've told them, I, I see my job as when they come up with good ideas or good approaches or concerns, my job is to kind of clear the space for them or clear the deck, so to speak, so they can implement and do, do these cool things. And I, I think having that sense of agency where, yeah, I'm responsible for this and also the, the sense of ownership that, you know, what I say or what I bring to the table matters, that has really helped us to create a high performing uh, group. Then when we expand that out, one of the challenges that we have in the security space today is, you know, security is one of these things where um, you, you can continue to throw money at the problem and you're never going to get to the end. 
right? You're, you're always going to have issues, et cetera. And so unfortunately we saw this trend, um, I would say back, you know, starting about 10 years ago where the answer to a breach or an answer to a major incident was to build a big security team. And when you do that, it ends up looking remarkably like a miniature IT organization, right? It looks like, oh, here's our sysadmins. Oh, here's our network admins. Oh, here's our web application folks. And they all focus on security elements, but within those same verticals. And so one of the things that we tried very hard to do uh, in our organization is we knew that we needed people with security backgrounds in those different areas, but we didn't want them in We didn't want them uh, siloed into the security team. So what we did is working with our CTO and our operations group, we created and funded security roles within the different areas of central IT. They dotted line back into security, but now, you know, if there's a question around, hey, um, how do we need to make sure this web application or this web server is, is secure? We have people within the web development team that that's their job and they understand what the, the rules, the standards, the monitoring, et cetera, all that is. And more importantly, they help create those programs. And so really expanding that out, what we're doing is extending that, that security culture out into the environment, as well as that sense of agency. And then the last thing I think from the faculty, staff and students, and this is, this is a little bit more of a challenge, but uh, what we do with them is we try to make them aware of issues. We partner with them. Um, we, we've been very successful working with uh, our student groups and co-curricular efforts uh to to help support what their interests are in the cybersecurity uh, realm. Um, and then the other thing that we've done is on the research side, we we have a very good relationship with faculty and across the organization that has enabled us to participate with them in NSF funded, activities uh, that do have a security component. So I think these, when we start doing these things, what's been very unique about the experience, I think, and what could be used as a model for other areas uh, is really working hard at developing those relationships and developing those integration points in the areas and ensuring that your team, your security team is focused on how to improve uh, how to improve the organization, as well as feeling that they have the agency to go forth and, and uh, propose and execute projects or tasks um, in line with those goals. Wow, that is, that is very impressive. Um, There's so many things that I, I'm picking up from what you just shared. A sense of agency, sense of ownership is super important. Great to hear that you all are able to team up with faculty on research projects, funded projects, because right there itself, um, you're getting a sort of a faculty incentive, faculty motivation, faculty buy-in. So I can see how that relationship can be really, really good. Um, when it comes to students, how are you able to build the kind that kind of a relationship where students develop a sense of ownership? So I think I think a lot of that very similar to to the faculty and research. It's participating in projects that they identify. Um, a few years back, we had a student group working with a faculty member 
that created a cyber club at Duke. And so we we started coming to the meetings, we we would present and it was less about these are things you should do, but more about how we approach security from an enterprise perspective. And the, the goal there was just to simply expose them to this is the way one enterprise organization is doing it, right? They're gonna go out into the world and, and they're gonna learn other things. Um, the second thing that, that or, or along with that, we also have these different co-curricular activities that happen throughout the year with students. And we have made sure that, that security is either uh, one of the considerations as a project. So it could be a particular topic. Uh, as an example, um, I think last year, the year before, uh, apologies, COVID still has my my uh, time, you know, sense of time kind of skewed a little bit. Uh, but we had a student group that worked on uh, a project around cyber stalking. And so we helped them out a little bit with that in terms of talking about some of the technologies, some of the approaches people use, how people could defend themselves. And it's because we have folks on the team that, that uh, have an interest in this and have a concern about it. So they, they simply became, um, they, they were able to work with the students on, on that particular approach. Um, we regularly participate in some of the courses that, that have a security component. Um, there, there's one that's taught at the undergraduate level where uh, we, we actually helped um, and we do some monitoring with this with uh, some of the, the labs and things that are done. Um, students are, are running Kali Linux with uh, and running certain malware analysis and other types of, of tasks on those. So uh, we, we always thought that was kind of a, a good thing to, to stay involved in. And I, I would say the other thing is from an internship perspective, um, one of the things that I'm, I'm a big proponent of and our team is a big proponent of is kind of helping that next group of, of um, young adults break into or get experience in the security industry. So whether it's Duke students, whether it's students from our uh, partners uh, in the Triangle area, the technical colleges, uh, and as well as a uh, big shout out to North Carolina Central and CCU. Um, we have a student-run security operations center and uh, we, we do partner with, with interns uh, from the Duke as well as the surrounding schools to help staff that. So they're getting real world experience um, that translates into, you know, immediate job opportunities after they finish up their schooling. And uh, we're, we're at the same time able to have some good hands-on monitoring that's happening uh, along with our core team. So, so you, you go above and beyond uh, focusing on the aware, raising awareness within your institution and you're going out into the community. That is so commendable, so commendable. Um, a couple of uh, related questions. Um, first relates to, you mentioned about how you have created a mechanism whereby the central IT team um, integrates very well with the security team. So when they are launching initiatives or developing plans to launch initiatives, security is an important part of the discussion. That is fantastic. But when it comes to academic departments and other business units, 
Do you have a liaison in place there? Do you have an evangelist in place there? How do you ensure that the various academic initiatives take into consideration the risk exposure before they go ahead with it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The and and when I look at this, the, this is where having a partnership with our Office of Privacy is also very important because many times when we start getting into the academic areas, you start getting into the the mixed or blurred environment of security and privacy, right? Because the data that you're dealing with, there are rules around whether it can be exposed or not. So I think we we deal with this a couple of different ways. The first is, yes, we do have IT contacts in each of the schools that, that along with their, their operational uh, responsibilities, uh, they do participate in our security initiatives and, and program. Uh, we call them security liaisons. And we, we do, they are able to help coordinate some of these challenges with us. Second thing I think that we do is, especially in the research space, uh, we work very closely with our, our research group at the, at the um, kind of the institutional level, as well as the IRB and helping to review protocols that come in and making sure ones that involve sensitive data uh, are being steered toward the right institutional opportunities there. That's not to say that it's perfect. That's not to say that, that there aren't exceptions uh, because there are going to be things like that that pop up from time to time. And so one of the things that we can do along those lines is make sure that, that folks are aware of, hey, here are the, the things where either contractually or operationally we are covered from a security and privacy perspective and if you go outside of these, then there are things that now you are responsible for. Um, and I think that's an important piece of the conversation. Then when we look at, from a risk perspective, we have to take that step back and say, okay, what is important to the institution? Understanding we're not trying to um, overlook any particular issues, et cetera, but clearly from an institutional perspective, we're going to be concerned about PII, you know, especially around our students and faculty, especially around pieces of, of PII or personally identifiable information that could result in financial fraud or, or identity theft. And as well as intellectual property that, that stems from classes or from research. And so those are the things that we really try to focus on. And when we understand faculty are working on things and we know that they collaborate with partners outside the university and they may be setting up things with those collaborators outside, it really is incumbent upon having that relationship with the research group or the, the uh, IT groups to identify where there might be a potential um, that, that we would want to have a conversation about. Okay. Good to know, good to know. So I have two final questions for you, Richard. The first one relates to, you're doing a lot of things, requires resources, requires time commitment, requires coordination, collaboration. What, in your opinion, is the single biggest hurdle that someone in your position faces on a day-to-day -day basis? And what, do you, what can you do best to cope with it? 
So I, what's interesting in the security space is it, it requires, I, I think for us or for me in particular, it is how things change day to day. So, you know, I often give the example, if I come in in the morning and sit down and say, here are the three things I want to get done today, and something happens or we have a curveball that, that gets thrown our way, then having that comfort to readjust and reprioritize and, and deal with that particular issue, I think it's important to do to have that. So if you're not comfortable with change, um, then you're probably not gonna be comfortable in this role. Um, second thing is, I, I would say, it along, and it kind of goes along with this idea of change, is you can't sit still, right? Security is not an end, it's, it's a journey. And attackers don't try once, give up and go away. And not only that, but you're, you're not dealing with one set of attackers. When you look at a university, um, a university is a lot like a small city, right? You've got some e-commerce that's happening. You've got building control and utilities that's happening. You have physical security. Uh, you have consumers. And then, of course, you have education and research happening, along with probably other things. And so when you look at this, the, your, your threat landscape is going to be very broad. And you have to constantly be thinking about, okay, what can we do better? How do we change? If I go back and look over the last 10 years and look at where we started and where we are now, it, it, it's a story of evolution. It's a story of change. It's a story of, of uh, maturing and, and adapting. And so I think that's a big thing. Um, the third is, is this idea of balancing and negotiating with other priorities, right? And security is important, but security, like I said, is not an end to itself. Um, Duke University's business is not securing data. Duke University's business is educating students, uh, performing research, and, and um, collaborating and, and working with the, the larger community, so among other things. So I, I do think that we have to be very thoughtful and, and make sure that as priorities are going, how can security play a role? How can it supplement? How can it integrate? And not how can it be done um, in, in isolation instead of dealing with these other, other goals? Um, there's also this, this balance, I would say, from a financial perspective. Right, you can spend so much money in the security space, and and you know it's it is a situation where there are good things to spend money on, um, but the at the end of the day, the when you're spending the money on it, it, it becomes almost like an arms race, and so we have to be thoughtful about how much we spend and where we spend it. Um, you also have to be aware that. There are a lot of tools out there where the claims are made that they can solve particular issues, et cetera. And um, you have to think a little bit about, do I want to invest in this thing? Will it really do what I want? And do I have the people and the approach to manage it? So I think those are kind of the three things that, that I look at from a challenge perspective and, and that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Amazing, amazing. 
My final question relates to performance measures. You know, you're doing a lot of things. I'm sure you'd like to have like a, you know, tracking mechanism, some kind of a dashboard that gives you a sense of how are you doing as a, as a unit, as a, for the function from a cybersecurity governance standpoint. So I, I think from a measuring, trying to think a little bit about it, because I, I kind of, the, the, the two, the two go hand in hand. I, I think for us, when we look at it, there's a governance and an operational component. So from an operational component, and, and one of the things that we've been trying to do over the last couple of year, years is marry governance and operational measure, measurements together. So operationally, I would say we started with, and we were really one of the first groups inside central IT to do this, is take advantage of log analysis. We, we were already collecting logs at scale and looking at that. And so we, we started, and there are numerous log analysis tools on the market, everything from Splunk to Humio, et cetera. But we really focused on taking that information in and then saying, how do we find anomalies for different issues that we can address it so that we can address? And I think that was a big thing. And then from there, what we did is we started tracking certain operational metrics. So for example, how many uh, compromised accounts do we have? And how many of those were because of phishing, right? Or how many of those were because of a, a shared password or something like that? That's a very basic operational metric. Uh, but we were also using information such as what things were open from the internet and saying, okay, you know, if we see this thing that's open from the internet, can we measure the traffic and decide how much of it is legitimate versus uh, perhaps uh, malicious? And by using that information, we were able to go forth and say, hey, we need to change our particular stance, right? Or a particular stance. We need multi-factor, right? Because that, that cuts down on account compromises or we need to require access to this particular service to come through a secure gateway, uh, as opposed to just being open on the, the internet, that type of thing. And now what we've started to do is we've, we've started to, because while we're at the same time we were doing this from a governance perspective and a risk perspective, what we were doing is kind of the old uh, qualified measurement of risk of, well, you know, our risks are around exposure to sensitive data or risks uh, around privacy and, and compliance requirements around certain research, right? Those are things that really resonated with the board and, and leadership. And so how do we start developing a, a, a set of cyber risk metrics that can speak to those concerns and they can see from a trend perspective, et cetera, uh, you know, how Duke is doing, and those are being driven by those operational metrics and, and analyses that we're doing. So now we're starting, you know, trying to couple those two, and that's that's one of our key projects that we're currently in the middle of. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your time, your insights. Um, I'm, I can tell you're doing an amazing job in your role as the Duke CISO. And I also want to take this opportunity to share with all listeners in whatever capacity they serve uh, or they are uh, important stakeholders. 
how important it is to empower the CISO role and function. They, can, they play a tremendous role in securing the organization from all kinds of attack prospects. Once again, Richard, thank you for your time. Any final words of wisdom? I, I would just say that what, what's been interesting in watching the role of the CISO develop over the last few years is I think that there is, is much more of a willingness to look at the CISO role as being something important, um, that there is a an interest in understanding how do we get better and, and this even the boards now recognize that there will be security incidents, there will be breaches, uh, there will be issues that, that pop up. But I think there is this growing recognition now that how do we get better at security, especially in cyberspace areas and and the detection capabilities. So all that to say that CISO, the, the CISO role, the way it has matured over the last few years, it is something now where we have very smart people that are coming into it, that there is longevity, there is consistency, there is maturity, there is growth. And that's encouraging to me. Uh, I would still note that the industry as a whole still, I feel, is setting unrealistic expectations for how they bring individuals into an organization in terms of needing X number of years experience or X types of certifications, things like that. Um, I would encourage us as an, order, as an industry to continue to look at the qualities of the individual and how we can bring them in and train them up uh, rather than expecting a finished pro uh, product coming into an organization. A special thanks to Richard Beaver for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.